In this episode, I'm joined by Shane Whaley, a travel industry veteran, and we're talking all about tours, activities, and experiences that you can check out when you visit Washington, D.C. An important note that I need to make is that Shane and I recorded this episode in February of 2020, just a few weeks before COVID wreaked havoc on the travel industry. So I chose not to release it last year because a lot of tour companies weren't operating or were operating at a limited capacity. But now that travel is starting to return, I think the time is right. I wanted to give you the heads up, because when we refer to trips and tours that we recently took, we are mostly talking about 2019, or the years prior to that. That's also why we don't make any references to COVID during the conversation. At the end of the episode, I'll include an epilogue to cover all of the important COVID-related topics that didn't make the original conversation and give you my honest opinion about what tours you can take that would make the biggest impact for the city and the industry. So with that said, let's get started. Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or see the show notes from this episode, you can do that over at TripHacksDC.com slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by TripHacksDC Tours. Travel is slowly but surely coming back. And when you're ready to travel, we will be here and ready to show you around. You can learn more about our experiences over at TripHacksDC.com slash tours. Today, I'm joined by Shane Whaley, travel industry veteran and host of the Tourpreneur Podcast. So, Shane, welcome to TripHax DC. Thank you. I'm deeply honored to be here, Rob. I'm glad to have you. I know that as someone who runs a podcast, hosts a podcast specifically about the tour industry, you have been on many tours in many different cities around the world. I have. It's my favorite thing to do. You know, Arrival, which is the big trade conference for tours and activities, they have this uh, slogan, the best part of travel. And for me, tours and experience absolutely is, and attractions are the best part of travel. I, you know, I'm not a multi-millionaire, so I travel coach, jammed up in the middle, sometimes an aisle seat if I'm lucky on an airplane. You know, I tend to book budget hotels, so I don't talk much about that. But boy, do I talk about the experiences I go on. And I have to admit, I'm a bit of the same way, not just because I own a tour company, but when I go on my own vacation, I'm kind of a tour enthusiast. Just went on my own vacation this winter and went on five different tours. So that's probably a lot more than most people listening to the podcast are going to do, but just goes to show how into it I am. Yeah. And, you know, I saw data from Arrival that said, on average, people have seven experiences. Now, I'm not sure if they, if that was including uh, restaurants or whatever, but I thought, wow, seven. That, that surprised me quite a lot. Yeah, definitely. But it's worth it. And I think that when people talk about their trips, they often talk about those as the most memorable parts. Yes, always. So the reason I wanted to do this episode is because there are a lot of choices, and this is true everywhere, but here in Washington, D.C., just before we started recording, I went on TripAdvisor, and I looked and saw a little bit more than 230 tour options here in town. And so what I wanted to do is, you know, for someone who's looking at that, they might feel completely overwhelmed because they're only going to be here for a few days, and they're going to struggle to navigate that list. So I was hoping that this episode would help to break down some of the options so that people can make the best choice for when they come. Yeah, sounds good to me. I mean, I I, homed, I was looking at it on because DC is one of my favorite cities. And I saw that, uh, you know, it, there were 79 different walking tours. 
I'm definitely one of many, and yeah. I hope that people who come to D.C. will come on one of mine. But I also understand that it's not for everybody, and the beauty of it is that there is something for everybody. It's just a matter of finding it. So I think the way that we'll break it down is first we'll talk about sort of how tours are priced and structured. And then after that, we'll talk about some of the different modes of transportation that you can use when you sign up for one of these tours. And then lastly, we'll cover some of the specialty tours that don't really fit into those categories. And we'll give some of our own practical tips and advice from our own travels at the end. Sounds good. So the first one that I want to ask you about is the free tour. Now, it seems like just about every city in the world has these nowadays, and we've had them in D.C. for many, many years. The concept is fairly simple. It's a free tour, although I think think that it might be better to call it more like a pay-what-you'd-like tour. Yes, uh, and I hear that some people don't pay <laughs> when they go on the tour, which it baffles me, to be honest with you. I-, I confess I've never been on a free walking tour, and that partly the reason is, you know, for instance, I go to Berlin a lot, and there's free walking tours everywhere there, and I've always paid to go on a tour, because I'm like, I'm only here for two or three days, I don't want to go on a tour, and, and I don't mean this with any disrespect to any free walking tours, because I'm sure they offer value, but my perception is, oh, if this is free, it's not going to be that good, and I've flown all this way, I want to spend the money to make sure I have a really good experience, and I learn a lot on this tour. Yeah, that's a really interesting perception because I know some of the guides who lead the free tours around here, and I think they're some of the best guides in the city. And the reason is because you've got to hustle to make it work. Now, it's a free tour, but they're really working for your tips, or they're really asking you to pay at the end what you thought the tour was worth. So these are not tour guides who are going to phone it in. They're really working hard to make sure that you have a great experience. So in that sense, you know, you might wind up with, some of the best tour guides uh, if you go on one of these tours. But the downside is, and, and I can speak to this because I'm often out giving my own tours when they're around, is that because it's free and because you usually don't even have to sign up in advance, the group sizes can get huge. Yeah. Yeah. So I agree with you about the size of the tour. You don't know how big it's going to be. I personally would get really stressed out the whole time trying to figure out what you know actually is fair what the fair amount yeah. is to, to give at the end. And I don't know, uh, to me, I just want a stress-free experience. I just want to go and, and know I'm getting what I paid for. So this kind of leads into the next uh, tour structure that exists. And that's, I guess, what I call a public tour. Some people call these a group tour. And these are tours where you buy a ticket in advance. So you go on the company's website. If you've got four people in your family, you buy four tickets. You show up and you go out with other people who bought tickets for the tour as well. I've been on lots of these. Um, because I'm a history buff, uh, and very often, you know, it's it's you have the choice of the private or the group tour. Obviously, the the group tour is cheaper, etc. Uh, and again, I, I I like it when they cap the group size, and I find that happens, you know, more so as we were saying than the 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 free tours. You know, the the paid for tours, um, group tours tend to be a more manageable size of you know in terms of the group numbers. Yeah, so I kept my public tours. So an example of a public tour is the Tripax DC Trivia Tour, which we run March through October. And each tour, there's 12 tickets. And once 12 tickets are gone, that's it. And if you want to go, you've got to get tickets for a different day. And the reason I do that is because, you know, I've, I've done tours for eight years. And one thing I've uh, sort of figured out is that when you get 
above 12, you know, it, it can still be a good experience. Uh, but once you get above like 15, it really starts to deteriorate. And so when I see uh, tour companies that are selling 20 tickets for a single tour, for a single tour guide, I just think that's t- it's too much. And, you know, it, it kind of pains me um, to see that. But I don't do that because even though I probably could get away with it during the busiest months of the year, I just don't want people to be in a group of 20 people if they're going to pay uh, $45 per ticket, which is what the trivia tour costs. Do you, out of interest, do you market that? So if I was to land on that page, do you say only 12 people per group or like how, how obvious is it to bookers that that's the limit? Yeah, that's a good question. It's not as obvious as it probably should be. Um, I think I, I think I put it in the frequently asked questions section, but I should probably put it right there on the on the tour page. That's a great tip, Shane. I appreciate that. No problem, because that's the kind of thing that would make me more likely to book. Oh, he's camping this at 12. Uh, because the other thing to bear in mind, and, and I'm saying this not from a snobby factor, because I think all of us who go on tours are, are, are perfectly aware of this. The higher the amount of people, the higher the likelihood of the idiot is going to be on your tour. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the higher it gets, there's more than one idiot. There's always someone that, you know, ruins it or ruins your experience because, you know, they're always asking silly questions or they're talking when the guide is talking. You know, there's always someone, right? And I just think the more people you have, then that idiot factor risk increases. So uh, I like that idea of 12. The idiot factor is a funny phrase. I might start using that. <laughs> yeah, and, and you've got to be careful with words like small group, for example, because around here, a charter bus can fit 50 people. And so they might consider 20 people to be a small group because compared to 50, 20 is small. But it really uh, is just, you know, you've got to think about what is my experience going to be like? If I'm walking around the National Mall with 20 other people, am I going to really be able to get the guide's attention? Am I going to be able to ask the questions that I want? And so that leads perfectly into the last tour structure, which is the one that's my bread and butter, and it is the private tour. And the private tour means that there's no tickets, it's just your family and the tour guide, you go at your own pace, you ask as many questions as you want, and there's nobody there. The idiot factor is not a consideration. Correct. No, I agree. And I'm a big fan of private tours, especially if it is a a topic or subject matter that is of, you know, high personal interest. And I remember going on one in London, so I also host a, a spy book and movie podcast and there is the intelligence trail spy tour in london and that's a private tour and it's expensive rob i think it was like 260 or something one of the best tours i've ever been on because i paid that again for the fact that i was only going to be in london for three days there was a free tour actually a free i think through no it wasn't free it was through airbnb experience experiences but you know like 10 bucks or something so i thought no i'll, I'll pay the you know the, the premium price and to this day, it's one of the best private tours I've ever experienced. Like the amount of knowledge and learning, you know, incredible. Yeah, and a big reason for that is that you have the guide's full attention. And you, you know, can ask all the questions that are on your mind. The The price you paid, I think, is very similar to the price that I uh, charge for the Triphax DC private tours this year in 2020. They're $299 for groups 1 through 10. And I've had single solo travelers plenty of times come on the tour, and the reviews are very positive, and many people will tell me afterwards that it was the highlight of their trip. And it's easier for me to make it the highlight of their trip when it's just their family because I can tailor it to exactly their interests and exactly what they want to do and see. Yeah, and what I did was I invited a few friends of mine along who also like spy and intelligence history, so they came. So it was a good – it was a social thing because I'm not back in England very often. 
So, you know, I got to spend three or four hours with them on the tour, learning lots. And uh, so it was a very good social experience as well. So let's move into some of the modes of transportation that uh, folks can experience when they are looking for tours. And we'll start with the one that is closest to my heart, which is the humble walking tour. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's probably one of the most popular because it's, uh, with all due respect to, to walking tourpreneurs, one of the easiest kind of tours to set up because there's not as much overhead when there's not transportation and uh, liability insurance, etc. involved. But also, it's sometimes the best way to see a city. So I've gone on lots of walking tours in New York, in London, and, you know, who wants to get on the underground you know, in London and miss everything. And there are certain things that you see when you're on walking tour that you're just not going to see when you're on a bus or underground or whatever it may be. So I'm a big fan. Yeah, you have to, I think, think in advance about whether the city you're visiting is a walking city. New York definitely is. London definitely is. And I would argue that Washington, D.C. definitely is as well. And so we cover on foot the exact same monuments that the bus tours cover and you don't have to ride the bus. You know, these are not far enough away that you need transportation in between them. Now, the bus company probably wants you to think they are, but they definitely aren't. And, you know, I have had folks from age zero to 90 on the tour and everybody's uh, had a great experience just doing it on foot. Yeah, well, I'm also a huge fan of hop on, hop offs. Um, And very often, you know, particularly when I was traveling a lot for work, if I only had an afternoon to myself, it would be, okay, let, let me just do the hop on, hop off. So at least I've seen some of the city when I'm here. Well, the other thing I used to do very often was, particularly I used to do a lot of work in Eastern Europe, is I would get to, say, Budapest. I would do the hop on, hop off. And as I'm on it, I'd say, oh, I want to go back and look at that monument. Or, oh, that museum looks cool. And that was the way that I'd be able to spot things. So, you know, I do like the hop on, hop offs as well. But walking tour, I just feel... You know, if you have the time for it, you just get to discover a lot more. And you get to meet people. You talk to people more on a walking tour than you do on a bus tour. You know, because on a bus tour, you're sat in your row. You might talk to your spouse or your partner if you're with. Whereas on a walking tour, you end up getting chatting to a few other people there. And there's been a few times I've done that where, you know, they're on holiday as well. So you've gone and had a few beers or you've gone for something to eat and, you know, made some new friends. Yeah, that's kind of the idea behind the trivia tour that we do is that you're not just here with these other people just seeing the sights. You're playing this game with them as well so you can make some new friends. If yeah. uh, you know you hit things off, then it can be a, a fun experience. And another reason why I like walking tours as a tour guide is that it's really the only mode of transportation where I can easily go into the sites with the folks on the tour. And what I mean by that is – you're not driving a bus, you know, right up to the Lincoln Memorial. You've got to park that thing a few blocks away and then walk over. You're not taking segways into the Vietnam War Memorial. You know, you're parking those things uh, away and then the tour guide's sending you in on your own. But when I'm on foot, I go in. I show you all the stuff up close. And that's one of the things that I think people don't really realize until they're here and they're on one of those tours that, oh, my guide's actually not going into these sites with me. I've kind of I've got to go in on my own. Yeah, and then there's the worry, you know, what time are you going to meet up? Where are we going to meet them, et cetera? And yeah, I, I hear you on that. So you mentioned the hop on, hop off tour. Uh, so that's uh, one one variation of the bus tour. There's a few different variations that we have here. I do want to mention that we have uh, some of the standard tourist buses here. We've got the big bus. We've got the Old Town Trolley. We've got, uh, I think, two or three other brands. Uh, and they're the brands that you see in all the big cities in the world. But we also have what's called the Circulator Bus. This is a public bus. 
and they have a national mall route, and it costs $1 per ride. And so a lot of people wind up using that to get around to the sites because it is significantly less than the one- or two-day passes that the uh, the double-decker hop-on, hop-off buses ha- uh, charge. Nice. It's a good tip to know when I'm down there next. Yeah, and what, what they typically do is the double-decker uh, hop-on, hop-off companies, they will run their buses as a hop-on, hop-off uh, during the day, and then, you know, Around 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, depends on the time of year. They'll switch it over to uh, a regular sort of route bus tour. So you'll meet at the meeting spot. You'll get on the bus. uh, There'll be a guide who will take you around to all the sites. And I personally think if I was going to do a bus tour, I would probably do this variation of it because the guide will often get off the bus with you and take you inside the sites just like I would do on a walking tour. Yeah, that's good. Also, you know, we we talked before about a tour in uh, in New York City, you know, slice of Brooklyn tours, and that some of the bus tours they and I don't know about DC specifically, but you know, they will it won't just be sit on the bus and look at sites. You know, there'll be food involved or drink involved, and they'll take you to some of those places. Do you have those in DC? You know, we we have a brew tour. I know um, someone who leads one of those, and they'll actually take you around to all the breweries in nice. D.C. in a van. And so that's a variation of that. Um, you know, the thing about D.C. is that it's it's a lot less spread out than New York City. So the, the bus tours tend to uh, have relatively small service areas. Now, the one thing that a bus tour might be good for is if you want to go to Arlington Cemetery, see the Marine Corps Memorial, the Iwo Jima. Those are kind of tough to get to on foot or by public transportation. So if you want to go over to that side of the river, a bus tour might actually be a good option for that. And I'm sure if anyone is in D.C. and they want to go to Gettysburg, then there's bus tours out of D.C. as well, right? Yes, there are. I actually have never taken a bus tour out to Gettysburg, but I had a customer last year on my trivia tour. He came all the way from Sweden, and he said he was taking a, a bus out to Gettysburg. And he said, you know, I have no idea if this is going to be any good. It's a total gamble. And so I followed up with him after he got home uh, to Sweden, and he said it was fantastic. It was one of the best parts of the trip. So, yeah, don't don't forget about that stuff because I typically don't recommend that people do the rental car at the airport here it's really uh, not – D.C. is not a city where if you're from out of town, you really want to be driving around. So going up to Gettysburg, you know, that can be a, a great thing to do on a bus. And I, I don't want to drive anywhere. I'll be honest with you. You know, when I go to L.A., I just, I just hate driving, especially when I'm on holiday. Yeah, I don't really drive, to be completely honest. I'm not sure how many listeners to the podcast even know that, but it is one of my least favorite activities. So I try to avoid it whenever possible. No, I'm the same because I, I want to relax on my whole. I don't want to be dealing with traffic and stress and everything else and trying to get to Gettysburg or even just getting around D.C. And, and of course, parking and all. Let someone else take the string. So if you don't want to drive, this leads perfectly into the next type of tour I want to talk about, which is the bike tour. Full disclosure, I was a bike tour guide for the first half of my career. So before I started Trip Hacks D.C., I was a bike tour guide. Nice. They're a lot of fun. I enjoy a bike tour in the summer. Yeah, I think the the thing that drew me to the bike tour, the reason why this is how I got started in the industry is it's fun. <laughs> like that it's just fun. And I love riding my bike, and so I figured, hey, I can get paid to ride my bike. That's pretty cool. And so that's why I did it. Yeah, and again, you get to cover a lot and yeah, I mean, I I I often will go on a bike tour when I'm somewhere like you know, when the when the weather's nice because it's a bit of exercise as well because we all eat well when we're on holiday and have some beers and stuff. So it, it feels like you're exercising as well as seeing some sites that you might not be able to cover by foot. And also buses might not be able to go down that street, for instance. So, you know, bike tours are really good at uncovering those kind of areas of a town that are not often visited by tourists. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. A bus can only go on main roads, and a bike can go on, you know, paths. It can go in the park. So on the National Mall, the bike can go almost all the way up to the Lincoln Memorial. Now, you're not going to carry your bike up all the stairs and take it inside up with the Statue of Lincoln, but a bus can't get anywhere nearly as close as you can on a bike. So in that sense, a bike is a much better option for, you know, if you don't want to do the walking, if you want a little bit easier way of getting around, it's perfect for that. Are you seeing in D.C. um, e-bikes, electronic bikes coming in now, Rob? Yes. uh, I think at least two of the bike tour companies now are using e-bikes. Now, I personally, having done a bike tour for four years, don't think that they're necessary if you're going to do the monuments and memorials because that park is almost completely flat. And, you know, it's a cool novelty, especially if you've never ridden one before. But I can see it being a lot more useful in a city where there's a lot more hills or, you know, if I was doing a, if I was going to do the Golden Gate Bridge tour again, you know, and not take the ferry back, I would want the e-bike to get back across uh, from Sausalito because that is one giant hill. So I can see it being a big draw in places like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I ask because I see the e-bikes becoming more and more popular. And I wonder if that's because, like you say, in areas where there might be hilly, for instance, that you know, people, and, 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 you know, there are some people out there that are worried. We'll, we'll talk about this later on with running, but, you know, they're worried about the physical exer- exertion, but they still want to get involved and go on a bike tour. And I think that's why we're seeing the e-bikes becoming more and more popular. Yeah, it, it's definitely a good sell for someone who's feeling uh, a little cautious or they're a little worried that they haven't biked in a few years. Uh, I mean, I had I had folks who'd come on the bike tour and they'd say, I haven't biked in 20 years, and most of them did just fine. But one, one disadvantage to the bike tour, and I alluded to this earlier, is that the tour guide does not go into the sites with you. So when I did the bike tour, I would ride you up to the stairs of the Lincoln Memorial. I'd tell you about Lincoln from down on the ground, and then I'd send everybody up to go see it on their own. And that's because I had to stay back and watch a bunch of bikes and make sure that they were safe and make sure that uh, everything was okay. So that is probably the one thing about leading the bike tour that I, I didn't like was that I never got a chance to really go up close and show people all the fun stuff up close. Yeah, no, I, I can understand that. And that is also the trouble with the next type of tour that uh, we'll talk about, which is the Segway Tour. Uh, now, the Segway Tours are, they've been around for a while. And I think the the reason why most people sign up for a Segway Tour is they want the novelty of riding the Segway. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've never, ever gone on one. I've, I've wondered about them and I'm intrigued by them, but I've never, ever gone on a Segway Tour. So around here, Segway Tour is generally speaking about twice as expensive as a bike tour. And so it's uh, something that you might sign up for if you really want that experience. But if you're, you know, not on more of a budget or you're just looking at the two options and you say, well, okay, it costs twice as much. Is it twice as fun? And some people might think yes and other people might think, eh, no, probably not. Yeah, I see it as the kind of thing I, I would do once for the novelty factor and then be like, yeah, okay, I've done that. I'll go back to walking or biking next. And I've actually never done one either myself. And the reason is because the, the company I used to work for, they did bike and Segway tours. And I was a bike tour guide, but, you know, just being an employee, we got a chance to poke around on the Segway uh, every once in a while. And it, it just was not for me. It just was not something that I could imagine doing on a regular basis. So, you know, it's good that I tried and decided it wasn't for me. And then I didn't have to spend any time on it. How difficult are they to ride? Well, they're, I think they're harder than people think, but they're not, you know, especially hard. Uh, you know, for example, if you've never ridden a bike in your life 
you couldn't show up 30 minutes before the tour and have me teach you, right? Like you'd need more training. You'd need more practice. With a segue, you generally you show up 30 minutes before the tour is supposed to start and they teach you and then you're good to go. Uh, so uh, I think for some people, they might you know try it and then say, uh, this is not for me and switch over to a bike tour. And other people might say, this is super fun. I wish the tour was four hours long instead of two. It's just really a, a personal preference. Yeah, it's it's good to think about these things, though. I mean, I know you don't offer these in DC, but when I was in Berlin recently, we went on a Trabant tour, and those things are really—I mean, they look cool and kitsch and everything, but really, really difficult to drive. Like constantly breaking down, like loads of smoke and pollution everywhere. So it's one of those things that look good on paper, but when you actually get in it, wasn't as much fun. Yikes! Maybe <laughs> it's a good thing we don't have those here. Well, one thing I want to mention about the Segway Tours is that they are not family-friendly. And what I mean by that is that uh, DC law requires that you have to be at least 16 years or older to ride a Segway. And so if you're a family with kids, this is not an option. Now, if you're uh, adults without kids, this might actually be uh, a benefit or a pro because you might think, well, I don't want to go on a tour with a bunch of small kids. And this is pretty much the only way that you can guarantee that because – uh, most tour companies are not going to discriminate against kids, but if the kids are not old enough to ride the Segway, they're not going to be on the Segway tour. Yeah, yeah, it's good, good, uh, good advice. I hadn't realized that, but of course it makes sense because they're they're pretty big things, aren't they? That if they career into somebody, you could do some serious damage. Uh, another type of transportation, a little physically demanding, is running, and we have running tours here in DC, and I know that these are you know in a lot of places. I've never actually done a running tour. It's it seems like something that you might do if you're a runner, uh, but it's it's hard for me to see the appeal because I'm personally not. So uh, I am a runner, or I should say, until probably about a year or so ago, I used to run half marathons, etc. But the the challenge, so the pros I think of a running tour is, of course, it's a bit like a walking tour on speed, right? You get to see a lot more in a short amount of time. You get to meet people, and runners are generally quite social when they go on these things. However, I think uh, the other good point of it as well, particularly I think for women, is if you're in a strange city and you're not sure where is safe to run, then going on that running tour, you know, you, you can speak to the running tour guide and he can say, oh, yeah, don't run in that area or don't run there after dark or whatever. Or, you know, this route is fine. You can do this straight out of your hotel. I think that's really cool because they can give you that route and give you advice if you're a runner and want to go on your own routes. Um, so I definitely think that's a good idea. I see a lot of people doing the running tours as part of, um, you know, corporate team buildings. Uh, when people have retreats or away days, a lot of people go on the running tour then. I think that the concern I always have is I say I'm a runner and really I'm a plodder. Like I'm, I'm not very fast. I mean, I've got, I got a good engine, you know, I've got good endurance. But when I see running tour, I kind of imagine these, you know, elite marathoners turning up and there's me bit overweight Shane <laughs> Got to go on the running tour and I'm like oh I might have been up more than I could chew um, but I know most of the running tours will say all running levels welcome and of course you know you, you're, you're a guide when you were on the bikes you're always looking after the stragglers and making sure they're okay and I'm, I'm confident that the running tour guide is exactly the same yeah I don't I think I of four years of giving bike tours maybe only once or twice had someone show up to the bike tour with, you know, the spandex kit and the cleats. And so uh, it's probably your fear of the elite runner is probably overblown. And like you said, a good tour guide will be able to account for that anyway. I think what's interesting to me is that the National Mall is extremely popular for runners. People always comment to me about 
I've I've not seen this many runners in years in my hometown that I've seen in a single day here on the National Mall. So it's definitely a runner's paradise, but I always kind of saw running as a solo activity, not a group activity. But, you know, if it's something that you're into, you can get your daily exercise in and you can see the sights, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I do see them becoming more and more popular and actually cropping up in more cities as well. So I think People do enjoy them probably for the reasons that I gave. That actually, when you're on holiday and you're running with a group, you know, runners are quite social. You know, very often running groups in a town, you know, Sunday mornings is like the casual run. I've been on those myself in San Francisco where you make friends and you chat about the football or whatever else. You know, you're not trying to beat your personal best. It's not part of your training plan for your marathon. So, you know, runners are social. And I'm pretty sure that the people who go on the running tour, you know, they may meet up the next morning and go running together. Um, so I, I can see the attraction. I would like, I would like to try one one day, actually see how they go. Yeah, I hope you will. I think what I would find appealing is that they're typically in the morning and I'm, I'm more of a morning person. And so I, I would have a very hard time asking people to show up for, at 7 a.m. for a walking tour. But I feel like a running tour, people would show up at 7 a.m. for a running tour because in D.C. it gets extremely hot and humid in the summer and they don't want to be out any later than they have to be. Absolutely. No, Absolutely. Well, I want to jump into some of the specialty tours now. So we covered all the modes of transportation, and now we'll talk about some of the, the specialty tours. And these can technically be done by any mode of transportation, but around here, most of them are done by walking. The first one is one that you actually alluded to earlier, which is a food tour. Yeah, these these are becoming super popular now. And I'm really pleased because I think for quite some time, people weren't really sure what happened on a food tour, Rob. Including me. Uh, yeah, I mean, and I'm more and more people. But you know what? What happens then? And I've, I've said this to a lot of food tourpreneurs: is there's a tremendous amount of pressure on those guys because they need to deliver. Because if somebody goes on their first food tour and it's rubbish, then chances are they may not ever go on another one again. I think that actually describes the first food tour I ever did. I I think I've done maybe five or six of these now in my adult life, and and the first one I was really struggling to remember what we ate, where we went, who the guide was. It was just very bland, uh, I guess is how I would put it. Now, I've done some spectacular ones, and I think that this is the thing about the food tour is that it's very difficult to execute, and the quality uh, tends to be all over the map. It really does. Um, It's so dependent on the food tour company having a really solid relationship with the restaurant or the vendor, making sure that you get in, you get your food quickly, that it's warm, obviously if it's hot food, uh, nice atmosphere, you get looked after, you you get made to, I mean, on the majority of food tours I've been on, you're made to feel almost like a VIP. You know, you get a special table and you get the manager might come out or the chef might come out and have a bit of a chat. You know, when, when they work, they're just superb because you feel like you're an insider. You know, you're getting this insider stuff that normal diners aren't getting in that place. So, um, you know, getting the secret. So, they're, they're, yeah, I love them to bits. And I always look for a food tour now wherever I go. But that speaks to the – to get into the business of it a little bit. The, the challenge – and you kind of have to think about this as a customer – is what incentive – does the restaurant have to participate in this thing? You know, if they've already got a line out the door, they're not going to participate in the food tour because they don't need the business. And I, I heard about a food tour company here in D.C. that I think they went out of business years ago. But they uh, their business model was to use the restaurants that were the most desperate for business, which, you know, meant that they weren't the best restaurants. And so the customers definitely noticed that they were not getting uh, the best experience. 
it's it's a very very tricky business to run to be a food tourpreneur. Uh, like I say, that's why you need that solid relationship with the with the restaurant, where they're like, okay, we understand that there is a chance that the people you are bringing here, and, and I've done this myself. I've gone on a food tour, had some delicious food in a particular restaurant, and said, right, we're going back there tomorrow. So a lot of them are getting the return uh, customer via the the food tour. Um, but then you're right, you know, if if they are exclusive and they never have any tables, then they're the ones that are very tricky for the the food tour operator to actually get a deal with and a relationship yeah. with. I, I did a food tour and their, the business model for this uh, arrangement was that the tour company would bring people to the restaurant. The restaurant would give them the food. The restaurant would be allowed to upsell them a drink, the customers. And the drinks were $10 each. This was years ago when that was a really high price. And I, like you said earlier, the upsell that's kind of a turnoff. And, and for me, it was a turnoff because we went to five places and at all five places, we were being kind of sold on this $10 drink, which can really, yeah, it almost doubles the price of the tour in a way that you weren't expecting. I don't mind as long as I know in advance. So when I'm booking, if it says in my confirmation, hey, the food is free, alcoholic drinks are extra. So then I know that if I want to have a beer or if I want to have a special cocktail and I see the price, I know it's not included, so I feel like, yeah, it's okay. But if it's not made clear, then I, I would agree with you. I'd start to get a bit you know, annoyed if there was the constant upsell. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's worth reading the reviews and, and looking for how people describe the experience and you know, kind of uh, asking, if you're unsure, asking, like, how much food is actually on this? Is it enough to replace a meal? Uh, I did a, a food tour in, in Bangkok, Thailand, actually. Every single stop was a full meal. Uh, and we were out, we were out for like four or five hours, but you know, by the end we were so full, we were, you know, we got in the tuk-tuk and we were, you know, in a food coma because we had had so much food. So it's worth asking if you're unsure at all, how much you're going to get to eat. Yeah, absolutely. Cause then you can plan accordingly, right. And not eat so much. Um, I, I, I agree with you on that. They're, they're absolutely, they're great fun. And I think the other cool thing about going on a food tour is, you know, talk to the tour guide and say, hey, you know, I really love Mexican food or Indian food. Where else can I get that in D.C.? Because the majority of food tour guides are, oh, you need to go to wherever, and they will give you that information. So to make sure that you ask when you're on the food tour, because they're a treasure of knowledge. Yes, excellent tip. Uh, another type of specialty tour that I actually recently did on, on my vacation is an architecture tour. And have you ever done one of these? I have, actually, yes. I did one in Chicago. Ah, excellent. Yeah. And I, I thought it was really interesting. I am not an architect. I am not an architecture enthusiast. I barely know the basics, but I still felt like it was a really great way to see the city. I agree with you. Um, and the way I did it was we, it was actually in Chicago and we did the river cruise, which is the number one thing to do in trip advice, uh, on, on trip advisor in Chicago. You know, I got the view of Chicago from the boat. Great. But then I went on a, a food, I'm sorry, I've got food tour on the mind now because it's almost tea time. But then I went on the architecture walking tour and it was much more intimate. And Margaret uh, was telling us about the tops of the buildings and the stories. So I kind of got the macro and the micro look at architecture in Chicago. It was a great way to do it. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, one of my friends runs the architecture tour company here in D.C., D.C. Design Tour. She's been on this podcast a few times. And it's it's more of a neighborhood walk. You know, their tours tend to take you into the neighborhoods, whereas my tours are generally the sites, you know, the monuments, the memorials, the big federal sites. Uh, theirs are much more the neighborhood tour. And so even if you don't know that much about architecture, but you just want to get into the neighborhoods, see where pe actual people actually live, then that actually might be a great way to do it. That's a really good idea. Yeah, I like that. 
And also, I think, you know, the, it does depend, I think, so for instance, did you go on Cobble Tales in Edinburgh? I did, yes. How, how was that? It was really good. Now, that's a city that has a lot of architecture, and um, it's very historic. You know, a lot of a lot of European cities are historic in a uh, way that U.S. cities are not. Washington, D.C. Is, is actually a pretty new city. Uh, it's mostly was built out in the 1900s. So it's, it's not an old city, but some of the architecture is quite unique and interesting. I, I ask you that because when I look at something like Cobble Tales, I get the feeling that could be quite, I don't know if intense is the right word, but for real aficionados of architecture. Well, that's the. I think that's another case where the tour guide will make or break it, and they'll be able to tell if the people on the tour are aficionados. They'll tailor it that way. If they're total noobs like me, they'll tailor it that way. And so, a, a skilled tour guide can make that work. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think I saw on Cobble Tales that she has a lot of town planners, and I'd go, "Gosh, if I was on that tour and all the town planners were on there, I, I wouldn't know. I'd have to have my dictionary with me." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I worried about that a little bit, but I actually did not feel intimidated at all once I got onto it. Now, another specialty tour, uh, one that I personally am, am not a big fan of, but is very popular, is the Ghost Tour. So have you been on Ghost Tours in your travels? I went on a, I think it was a drunken history tour in New <laughs> Orleans. And as you that know, would in be New a Orleans, place to do a drunken history tour. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, the tour guide actually got quite drunk at the end of it. That's a whole other story. But so obviously, in New Orleans, nearly everything is to do with, you know, voodoo and, and ghosts and everything else. And I'm not really a ghost guy, if truth be told. But it was still, it, she, she told some really interesting stories. And it wasn't just, oh, this house is haunted and that and that. You know, she kind of tied it into the history of New Orleans and, and the people who lived in the house, how they were involved in in the community and I, I kind of enjoyed it it's not like you know going to a haunted house and like when you, know, you see these tvs on uh, tv shows on cable you know these ghost adventure shows not like that but actually if there's history attached to it i quite enjoy it yeah i think that's a good point i i kind of see ghost tours as a halloween attraction but that's really not right and i didn't really uh, know that they were so popular until i was a guest on the travel man podcast and uh, ben, the host, one of the first things he asked me was, does Washington, D.C. have any ghost tours? And I said, well, yeah, we, we do. Why do you ask? And he said, well, because when I travel to a new city, the first thing I do is look up the ghost tours so that I can go on one. So, yeah, we've got ghost tours here. And uh, apparently there's a big community of folks who are who are into them. Yeah. I mean, if you if you look at Apple iTunes, for instance, for podcasts, you know, some of the most popular podcasts out there is true crime and, and ghost podcasts. And some of the folks who have been guests on tour, your Tourpreneur podcast are owners of Ghost Tour Company. So they are indeed. It's definitely yeah. a cool niche if you're into it. I will say that these uh, can be a bit performative. So they're, you know, you might have the tour guide dressing up in, you know, some sort of costume and telling you the stories. But like you said, it's not a haunted house. It's not like somebody's going to jump out at you from behind the bushes and scare you. Yeah, I think it really does depend. Obviously, you know, your your listeners are smart, so look at the reviews, read the tour description, because there are those kind of tours. They tend to be quite seasonal, like you say, around Halloween, and, and some people love that stuff, you know, it's a bit of fun. But uh, if you want something serious where, you know, a lot of the ghost tourpreneurs I talk to, I mean, they these aren't guys who just, you know, watch horror movies. I mean, they, they do like, years of research on local history and people who died and events that happened and houses that burned down and tragedy. I mean, they, they do a lot of research. Yeah, and uh, the U.S. Capitol here in Washington, D.C. has is haunted. There's plenty of ghosts who haunt that place, including a cat, a tabby cat, 
which you will learn all about if you take a ghost tour, but I don't know enough about it to say any more about it on this podcast. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Shane, I want to um, move away from talking about the types of tours and just uh, talk about some of our practical advice for folks who are coming and who are trying to figure out which tour to sign up for. Because like I said at the opening, there are over 200 tours on TripAdvisor here right now. And most people are not like me. They're not going to sign up for five different tours on their vacation. I hope they w- I hope they do because I had a great time on all five of those tours. But uh, they might pick one. They might pick two. And so, you know, what's the what's the advice you would have for navigating that huge list of options and, and picking one that they would want to do? Yeah. So I think really, I mean, I, I'm looking right now at walking tours in D.C. and I'm seeing everything here from Georgetown Foodie Tour to a Twilight Tour. There's your haunted DC walking tour. So I, I think kind of drill in a city like yours is to drill down into like, what am I interested in? Um, and then looking to see if there is a walk, which is not just the general, here's the city, here's the town, but actually like like this haunted one, for instance, or the, the food one. Also, I think, you know, also there's a Lincoln assassination walking tour. Now I'm a history buff, so I'm all over that one. Um, so, you know, looking for one that appeals to, to your interest. But then, of course, the key thing, there's a couple of things here. First of all, you know, you've got to look at the reviews. You absolutely have to look at reviews. I don't book anything, <clears throat> whether it's a book on Amazon or it's a tour or hotel, I'm all about the reviews. And, you know, you have to take a lot of reviews with a pinch of salt as well. If you see all five stars, but only six reviews, then that sometimes raises an eyebrow over that. But, you know, kind of... Uh, just just assess holistically the whole of the reviews that they've got because also we know being in the business that some people are just never happy either and they're quite unreasonable with what they expect on a tour um yeah and i think the other thing that i don't like this to be honest but as we're talking about TripAdvisor now is you often see this button likely to sell out and i'm talking to tour operators who are like no i've got plenty of availability i don't know why they're putting that button on the tour and I don't know if you really want to get into that, but it's it's worth saying that um, these companies are scaring you into booking, and it's not just tours; it's hotels and it's flights and it's it's everything. And uh, even Shopify stores, you know, they'll say like, "Oh, there's only ten left," when in reality, there's as many as you want. And I, I heard Airbnb is doing the same thing; uh, they're marking every tour as likely to sell out, or you better book soon because it there might it might not be around for much longer. So you, you've definitely got to take that stuff with a, with a grain of salt. Now, always book early. I always tell folks book early, especially a private tour, because if you want to do a private tour with me, for example, there's only one of me, and once I'm booked, that's it. So if you want your pick of date, you got to get on the calendar early. Um, a public tour, you could probably get away with a, a shorter window, but still, uh, tours sell out, especially if you come during the spring break and during the summer break when a lot of people are here. Yeah, and also check cancellation policies. Um, I know you probably won't like me saying this, Rob, but you know, try and pick one that does have cancellation, uh, short cancellation, maybe 24 hours in advance, because you never know how the weather's going to go. Um, so I would always say to travelers to, to make sure, you know, I, I don't know what TripAdvisor's policies are on this, what their cutoff period is, but to make sure there is a cancellation period. Yeah, uh, I, I think most most good tour companies will have a generous cancellation policy. Um, I have a what I think is a pretty generous cancellation policy, and we have to kind of run rain or shine because especially in the summer here, it, it rains pretty much every single day. But if it's if it's going to be really bad, we usually will try to let people switch to a different date to the extent that that's possible. And then the other thing I really suggest your listeners do, and your listeners are smart, they know this, is try and find the tours um, 
So if you're on TripAdvisor looking at tours, try and find the company's direct uh, homepage and see if it's cheaper. I think it almost always will be. (laughs) I actually was going to ask you why tour companies want the customers to book direct. And it's the same reason the hotels do and the same reason the airlines do. It's because they have to pay those companies to be listed. And when you book through one of the companies, the you know, operators only getting a fraction of it. They're not getting 100% of it. Whereas if you book on their own website, they get it all. Absolutely. So there, there's that commission. Also, again, without getting too much talking shop here and how the sausage is made, you know, TripAdvisor are increasing rates across the board for a lot of tours right now as part of an experiment. They're doing price testing. I'm hearing of kind of 10% increases. So you could potentially save yourself 10% on a lot of the tours you're seeing on TripAdvisor. So here, for instance, I think what I'm looking at, the the Lincoln Assassination walking tour, it lists the tour operator underneath. So do a little bit of digging and you might might save yourself some some money. Yeah, I uh, have to admit, um, I took my tours off of TripAdvisor uh, this winter. They're doing some questionable things, and I, I might put them back. I might not. So if you find a tour on TripAdvisor and they say, oh, there's no availability, go directly to the company's website and you might find availability because I don't think I'm the only one who's in a bit of a limbo at the moment when it comes to, to TripAdvisor or some of the other companies. So you'll always find the full inventory of, of uh, tours that they offer on their own website. Absolutely. No, that's uh, good advice. So another uh, trip hack that I use when I'm booking a tour as, as a customer is I will go on the company's website and I will uh, poke around on the calendar and look at a date pretty far in the future or a few dates far in the future and see how many possible tickets it allows me to buy. And that will kind of tell you what the maximum number of tickets that they're going to sell for uh, for a tour. So if you notice that all the tours, you can't buy more than 12 tickets, well, that means their max is probably 12. If it's 30, that means their max is probably 30. And that goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is getting in a smaller group will give you the better experience. That's something I've never done. So thank you for that tip. I will, uh, I'll have to look into that when I'm booking my next tours. Yeah, hopefully you'll, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll post it right on the landing page like you suggested I do and which I think I will do immediately after we uh, finish our conversation but when they don't do that I I just you know I just want to know now that I know as a guide you know what numbers start to deteriorate in quality and thing is uh, especially if you travel off season just because they sell 20 tickets doesn't mean that 20 people are going to buy tickets Uh, when I when I went on my tour to to Scotland of my vacation to Scotland this winter um most of the tours were not sold. None of the tours were sold out. Most of them were not even close to sold out. And that's because January in most of the world is not peak time. Now, if I went there in June, every single one of those tours might have been sold out for as many tickets as they sell for it. So it really depends on the time of year that you're going. Yeah, especially in August during the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. It's hard to get get a hotel room, let alone a tour there. So you're absolutely right. And it's interesting, as you were chatting there, I was looking at this Lincoln assassination tour and I did that i can see that they uh we're sorry this activity is limited to 15 travelers so that's a really good tip props so i can see they're only taking 15 on there yeah and i actually know the tour guide for that when she came on the lincoln history episode of the podcast so you can uh, listen to that one if you're curious before you go on the lincoln assassination tour about I some of the lincoln history will. yeah and i want to reiterate the point that you made about if you're going somewhere during the peak season you know in edinburgh that's it's august because they have their fringe festival in dc it's uh spring break and summer break so you know uh, around cherry blossom season 
late March, early April around Independence Day. There are a lot of other tourists here. So book early because the worst thing that you can do is to, you know, plan to do something and then wait too long and then find out you can't do it because it's sold out. Yeah, I agree with that. And then the other thing to do is is to make sure that you're doing your due diligence and, and really going through the full listings here. Don't just look at the top three because if I did that, I would not have seen this Lincoln assassination tour. And we probably would have been talking about this in the future and it would have cropped up or I'd have listened to it on your podcast and go, oh, wow, I missed an opportunity to go on that tour because I didn't scroll down and I didn't search. Yeah, and I'm not sure what website you're on, but a, a bone I have to pick with TripAdvisor uh, I have many bones to pick, obviously, as as you can tell. But they used to let you um, sort by ranking best to worst. And I always used that. I always sorted best to worst. And I would look to see who the, the top tour companies were, who the top hotels were in a given city. And they don't let you do that anymore. Now they only let you rank a sort either by price or by you know their default ranking, which is my, my guess is the tours that they want to sell because they make the most money selling them. And so – I've looked at that list and what I think are the best tours in D.C., not just mine, but the actual other companies that run the best tours in D.C., they are not on the front page. So you've really got to get pretty deep into the list before you really start to get into the good stuff. So be careful with that when when you're researching. Yeah, that's good advice because I think what what – what the public doesn't understand and we do is that you know TripAdvisor are trying to make money out of every click so they they also should they should be putting the tours at the top that are converting the highest because that would be the ones that people are really interested in but I think there's all sorts of uh, skullduggery going on with it. I don't even think they've worked out their ranking system themselves, quite frankly. So Yeah, it is a a bit uh, inside baseball, but I think it's useful for customers to know this kind of stuff. You know, even whether it's tours, whether it's hotels, is to know, you know, these companies are not necessarily being objective. They're selling you what they want to sell you, and they might have various reasons for pushing one thing or the other. Yeah, we we need to remember that these rankings are – created by data scientists not by tour guides and not by travelers this isn't you know our 10 favorite picks of dc they're looking at the traffic what's converting what's giving the biggest roi and they're the ones likely that are at the top of the list for for walking tours for dc and you know it's not just TripAdvisor. i'm picking on them even with amazon you'll notice when you look at a book and read the reviews they have something at the top which says you know top reviews i always change that to most recent reviews because they're just showing you the the cream, you know? Yes, absolutely. I, I've become skeptical re- with reviews, and I read a lot of them because I'm always keeping up with the competition and such. And, you know, it, it, you, you learn to read between the lines. You, you learn to realize that some people, they're just never going to be happy, and you can ignore those. And, um, you know, some people give really important details, like, for example, with the food tours, people will leave in their reviews how much food they got and whether it was a meal or not. So sometimes you can get really valuable information from them. I agree. I agree. Well, Shane, I really want to thank you for spending the time coming on to the TripHacks DC podcast and sharing all this wonderful knowledge about tours and helping folks decide which one will be best for them when they come to Washington, D.C. Okay, this is 2021 Rob back with the epilogue to this episode. Everything I'm about to say is exclusively my opinion based on my experience over the past year. When COVID hit D.C. last March, It was devastating to be in this industry, knowing that we were about to lose spring break and cherry blossom season, which is typically one of the busiest and most profitable periods of the entire year. I don't think anyone at that time thought we would also lose Memorial Day, Independence Day, a once every four years inauguration, 
and even this year's cherry blossom season to some extent, not to mention the attack that happened this January and the fallout from that. My initial fear was that small tour companies like TripHacks DC were doomed, and we would all wind up out of business. But through a combination of just enough small business administration support, creativity, and resilience, most small tour companies in Washington, D.C. are still alive. That's not necessarily the case for the big tour companies, though. What you have to understand is that many big tour companies got big by taking on a ton of debt, spending a lot of money, and trying to grow and expand to as many cities at breakneck speeds as possible. And when COVID hit, that all came crashing down. On the other hand, TripHacks DC and many similar small local tour companies have no debt, which made it easier to weather the storm. Not pleasant by any means, but possible. So what happened is that big tour companies actually got even bigger over the past year as they merged and acquired each other. I'm not going to name names, but I can tell you that many of the big brand tours here are owned by companies that are not based in D.C. Some of them are owned by companies that aren't even based in the United States at all. Now, the reason why all of this matters is because a few years ago, a survey was conducted by American Express and the National Federation of Independent Businesses. They found that when someone spends $100 at a local small business, $48 is recirculated back through the local economy. But when you spend that same $100 at a national chain, only $14 makes it back to the local economy. So if you're someone who's conscious of things like sustainable tourism, this is a really big deal. And I'm just going to go ahead and say that Washington, D.C. has an incredible number of small local tour companies that all deserve your business because they have a stake in D.C. that goes way beyond profitability. Do they want to make money? Of course, they're still businesses. But they also want to be ambassadors for the city and make sure that you have the best possible experience you can while you're here. That doesn't mean that big brand tours are necessarily bad experiences in the same way that Chipotle is a delicious meal no matter where you eat it. But when I travel, I specifically skip eating at places like Chipotle because then I'd miss out on a meal at a place that might turn out to be an awesome local gem. And because I know that eating at Chipotle means my money doesn't stay in the local economy. Of course, I hope you consider booking a Trip Hex DC tour when you travel. But there are so many other great tours beyond the ones that I offer. There are architecture tours, feminist tours, food tours, and tours led by history buffs so nerdy that Nicolas Cage's character in National Treasure would geek out over it. To make it as easy as possible for everyone to find them, I put together a curated list of local tour companies in a blog post over at triphexdc.com slash local tours, and I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. So let's jump back to 2020 Robin Shane to wrap up. So for folks who want to find out more about what you're working on, you are the host of the Tourpreneur podcast, which is a tour industry inside uh, resource. And what else do you do? You mentioned another podcast that you host. So I actually have two. So I have Spybrary, which is spybrary.com, like library. And I interview authors of spy books. We have roundtables. We do something called a brush pass, which is when one of our listeners will record a five to ten minute ten minute review of a spy book they've just read or a spy tv show and then i have another one which is rather obscure and it's called radio gdr um, which is a podcast all about the history of east germany oh cool 
which is uh, another historical interest of mine. And, you know, the wonderful thing about podcasts is the communities that, that they, they build. So you have this with yours. We obviously have it with Tourpreneur. And in November, for the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, we actually had a meetup of my Radio GDR podcast. And 25 of us turned up in Berlin. We had custom tours. We had talks. It was just fantastic. So uh, it, it's been a really good, although they are hobby casts, it's amazing how many friends I've made through doing it. Well, that's really cool. And I'll be sure to link those in the show notes so that folks can find them, listen to them if they're interested in those topics. I am a history buff, so the one about East Germany is definitely up my alley. And so I'm going to check it out myself. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Shane. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.